Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Josh Galecki. And today, we're talking about Within a Dead City, developed by Moonroof Studios, a.k.a. our very own Josh Galecki. Hey! It was released on Steam in August of 2023. And as is tradition, Josh released a game, so I'm here to ask him all about the process of developing it and uh, what it's all about. So, Josh... Welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, longtime listener, and um, you know, actually, I've been on most every episode here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I always like doing this just because you know I'm fascinated with the game design process in general, and um, you know, it's a good uh, way for us to you know one promote your stuff because why the hell shouldn't we? And also, um, hopefully, it provides some insight to to folks who are interested about, you know, the very real intricacies of being an indie game developer like yourself, yeah? Oh, even beyond that, too. Like, it's one thing when we play a game when we kind of speculate about, like, oh, why did they choose this instead of that? Um, where, right here, I got the answers. So that can be a fun way to talk <laughs> about the different game design decisions, too. Yeah, and uh, keen-eared listeners may note that... Uh, the gap between your last two games, was, commercial releases of games, that is, was about a decade. And this one was <laughs> uh, probably about a year or less, right? Well, maybe only a few months. Yeah, Moondrop came into early access in August 22, after my previous game, Dwarven Depths, was released in 2011. Um, <laughs> and then I actually got the full release of Moondrop out uh, at the end of July, and then this game, Within a Dead City, was released a week and a half later. So definitely did a lot of marketing and outreach uh, the last couple of months, um, trying to get these games, get the word out about them. Um, but there was definitely a more compressed development timeline on this game, too. I started this game January 1st of this year, and I had the first version up on Itch at the end of February. Um, took some feedback there, uh, put the game to the side for a couple of months to let some ideas sit and percolate while well, I made a, another game called Sleepwalker. That's the uh, It's kind of like a citizen sleeper um, sci-fi adventure narrative mystery sort of thing. Um, did that with another team too, but then put another month's work of development in this for the next fest uh, that was in June, and then another month's worth of development in it before its release uh, last week. So Definitely a more rapid-fire uh, cycle than my previous release, Moondrop, which all said is probably about two years plus of development. Yeah, so now we're talking like maybe a six-month time frame, which is, that's awesome. I know you mentioned at the end of that podcast talking about wanting to develop on a more rapid time scale and, and do some smaller, uh, more contained projects, and or at least something that could be put out and, and consumable at an earlier stage, which I would say, uh, mission accomplished. That's awesome. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, there's this game-making club, I think I mentioned it in our last podcast on Starseed. Um, it's called Tiny Mass Games, and um, we started that at the beginning of this year, 2023. And the idea was we saw Sock Pop having such great success with what they had with uh, Stacklands, but even before they had that breakout hit, they had a kind of sustainable indie studio thing going um, and not one that was not a common kind of way to structure a studio or a um, uh, publisher or what have you. Um, although it has been kind of like that mantle has been taken up by some other um, collectives as well. I know Punk Cake is trying to do a kind of a similar thing these days too. And now Tiny Mass. Um, but the idea is we're trying to make short form games, things that, don't take two years to develop, but still end up with a finished and polished product. Things that have like all the juice you expect a game to have. Uh, good UI, bug-free, all that good stuff. Um, but then trying to create that in a smaller time frame. Um, you get a lot of benefits from things like that. Like if you get your product out there quicker, uh, you can go through more game ideas which i'll tell you any game designer any game developer has like a dozen in their back pocket they want to develop but they don't have the time for so you can try out more ideas you get the game in front of people sooner 
and they're able to say, I like this or I don't. Like, um, Within Dead City had an enthusiastic response when I put it on itch.io. People liked the game, they kept playing it, they commented. Uh, so I'm like, well, I could probably make this into a commercial offering if I uh, developed it more. Uh, my second game, Sleepwalker, uh, did not have much of a response. So I knew, okay, well, that's that's Let's not the one. On. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I like the idea of sort of rapid prototyping and getting things out to the public like that. It's a it's an in- interesting way to go. And yeah, uh, Punkake Delicios, uh, you mentioned uh, makers of Shotgun King, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Another one we covered on this cast earlier. That's right. Just wanted to ground that for the audience. So um, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, really uh, interesting little product here. And I think before we get too far afield, we should nail down exactly what Within a Dead City is, because this obviously appealed to me right away. And I'm going to give my one sentence description of it. And then you can give yours as sort of the actual developer of it to correct me, so to speak. But Mm -hmm. this to me is a tiny majesty-like, and majesty, for those who don't know, uh, is the uh, original Fantasy Kingdom Sim, or maybe not original, but one of the early ones. A game from the 90s or maybe early 2000s, I can't remember exactly, but you um, play as the uh, owner of a kingdom and you hire heroes, but you don't control them. Within a Dead City is very much like this. You are uh, the leader of a guild who is hiring heroes to explore a quote-unquote dead city. And uh, they get to uh, explore that city. You place bounties on uh, targets for them to pursue. And eventually, hopefully, you prevail against the dead city's flora and fauna. Yeah, uh, this game is very consciously inspired by Majesty. Uh, came out in 2000, and they did have a sequel in 2009 that was, I think, less well-received than the first one was. Um, and it's weird trying to describe the genre, even, because, you know, like, Steam needs its tags, it need, needs its genre and everything. Um, when it first came out, it was described as an RTS but um, because you don't actually control the units like you do in most RTSs. There's no like um, there's no micro game going on or anything like that. Um, so it's a simulation game, really. Kind of. But simulation games like a simulation game this day has such a different connotation uh, yeah. than it, it did back then. Like um, a lot of people think of like maybe colony sims now where you don't control the people directly. But neither majesty nor within a dead city or a colony sim really it's not about like the stories and the long-term sort of thing um i described this game i think someone described it on a steam review as a coffee break majesty which is about exactly what i was going for (laughs) i love that and it is a perfect description because uh a game of majesty back in the day could be probably up to you know, a couple hours, like it could be an hour to, to two, two and a half, uh, depending on the length of the scenario, the size of the map and the complexity of the goals you were pursuing. Um, given this is sort of a tiny game, quote unquote, I'm going to use that term uh, to describe this. Um, it is singularly uh, easy to consume in a coffee break style. I, I would usually like uh, during the course of preparing for this play around at like a lunch break or between meetings, you know, and it's going to take you I don't know, anywhere between five and 15 minutes, depending on how uh, things go for you. I could see it going longer if you continue to uh, play after you meet the scenario you've chosen for yourselves goals. But um, I like the fact that it is bounded in scope and then you're free to continue as you will after that. Yeah, the game started off with, like, uh, there's three game modes right now. The first one's Conquest, which is like, destroy all the enemies on the map. Uh, Maybe an asterisk there, destroy the most powerful enemies on the map, because I found that trying to send your heroes out to find that last little rat layer was not, like, fun at the end of the game. Uh, So I just edited it when you (laughs) beat the biggest bad guys out there. Uh, The next game style I implemented, the survival thing, was very consciously to... Uh, create a time-bounded game. That game takes 15 minutes, and you can play it at twice speed, so you know you're done inside eight minutes that way. Um, So you're able to make sure you're like, oh, I got 10 minutes before I got to do something. I definitely have time to play this game and finish it up one way or another. Right, so so that's just stay alive this long. I like that. Um, I have a question, though, before we we get into some of the more... um, 
intricacies of, of the game that you actually made. Why why Majesty? Like I know that is a game we both have history with, but like what what brought that back into the forefront of your brain? Oh, I loved the game. Uh, it ha- was so I feel like unique about uh, how it went around doing things. I remember before we started recording these book club discussions as podcasts we actually had an episode on majesty and uh, i don't know if you remember this or not but i thought we'd like try something new for that discussion where we're like workshopping creating our own majesty and i still have some notes about like some of the what makes majesty work and whatnot that i actually referred to creating this game again so this is a continuation of the podcast well that is that's pretty fantastic. And yeah, um, I guess what you're referencing is back when we did the book club as a, just a book club, you know, a non-recorded uh, thing we did and just talked on a monthly basis about a game. And yeah, to your point, I, I do remember that now. Holy shit, that was a long time ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it is, you know, it's a cool game that obviously, it, you know, we both did have history with, but I'm, I, I'm glad to uh, maybe in a small way have contributed to jogging the, the ideas here. But uh, that's awesome. Uh, it is a singularly unique game to my mind, too, in that, like, it takes control away from the player in very interesting ways, you know? Uh, I guess coming back to Within a Dead City now, uh, as we mentioned, you're hiring heroes, but you're not directing them. This isn't like StarCraft, where you hire a warrior and you tell him to go kill a rat. Um, that warrior is just going to act on his own script. Warriors act different from rangers, act different from wizards, act different from clerics. Uh, and it's all... Uh, in service of creating a kingdom simulation where you as the ruler are placing incentives but not necessarily controlling the action you're able to do certain things like um place bounties on monsters or monster layers in order to try to entice your heroes to go after them this is in both games here you're able to cast some spells and kind of decide what the build order of your uh base is going to be but yeah you aren't able to tell your wizard go attack this rat here you have to try to like nudge them towards that in different ways and i think that makes it categorically different than other rts's out there like um starcraft you train a marine okay you got a marine you know what you got there when you don't control them they start doing their own thing and you start to like Tell yourself more of a story about it. Like, no one really tells a story about Jim the Space Marine because he just gets <laughs> slaughtered by Zerglings or whatever. But, like, um, Bob the Overconfident Wizard, you know, a very uh, <laughs> classic majesty, I'm melting kind of thing. Um, yep. You know, it's like, uh, it's it's a lot more, enter- like, there's a level of entertainment you get just from watching the people go around that you don't get in a normal RTS. I totally agree with that. Like you, you definitely have characters who you're like, oh man, what's this warrior fuck up getting into this time? Um, <laughs> and yeah, and you know, it, it does sort of lend itself to the writing of more interesting stories than like if you are responsible for the direct actions of all of them yourself. And I want to call out one thing you mentioned there, but but you mentioned pretty quickly in passing is that as the king, you know, or the leader of this guild, you are also responsible for the infrastructure of the guild, aka you are placing buildings. You are building, say, a potion shop or a blacksmith or um, a guardhouse or a trading outpost. And in this way, you're also, in one way or another, incentivizing and directing the actions of your constituents, aka your guild's heroes. And I think that's really interesting. Like, you're actually giving the levers of power that a real ruler or leader would have to the player instead of what a omnipotent fantasy ruler who directs everyone's actions directly would have, right? Like it is a more (laughs) realistic simulation of being a leader. Yeah. In a lot of different ways, like um, you're laying the groundwork for your heroes to uh, go out and explore and survive. Um, I think it's a really instructive way of constructing a game to show that like, when you're taking away the the omniscience of being the the overlord of an army, you know, where you're directing everyone's actions like that, what you're really boiling down to is like how they're going to act on their own. And that is interesting to see. And to your point, it generates stories that you wouldn't get otherwise. But I guess maybe let's talk a little about a little bit about what Within a Dead City is like from a game-to-game perspective. And, and maybe I'll just describe the loop real quick and you can fill in the blanks that I'm definitely going to forget. So 
In starting a game of Within a Dead City, you are initially just having your little guild hall on the map within the uh, quote-unquote dead city that you are now tasked with exploring and plundering. Um, you will staff up the guild with a couple of heroes, uh, eventually get enough money to expand the guild, build out some infrastructure, as I mentioned, the potion shops, the blacksmiths, maybe some spells, and then over time your heroes will gain some gold from exploring and adventuring, they'll gain some mana from, uh, once again, plundering and exploring, and then you'll uh, ha hopefully have a virtuous cycle where they will continue to uh, bring in enough gold for you to expand and staff up more and continue on your great plundering adventure within the dead city <laughs> <laughs> yeah that is uh the long and short of it um those are the actions you have in the game it's very limited of course because you aren't directing units around um directly you have to just kind of say it would be really cool if you killed this guy over here i'd be a fan of that um and you're building up as the enemies around you build up too so you try to wipe them out before there's too many of them for your heroes to handle uh you do have a limited number of heroes in this uh, more so than majesty more many more so than any other rts i think um there's a limit of nine heroes right now uh so even if they're all high powered you can still end up in situations where your base gets overrun not because your heroes are dying uh, but because they can't kill things fast enough. Yeah, yeah. It is one of those things where uh, you can stir up enough wasp, wasps' nests that you will be overrun by the wasps. <laughs> <laughs> and, Very um, much so. Yeah, and, and I guess your job is to um, hopefully keep things at a place where you're expanding at a reasonable rate, not uh, stirring up too much uh, crap and allowing them to you know, continue to snowball in power, like your heroes is what I'm saying, is your strategy, hopefully, is to uh, let them fight enough that they're getting enough experience and gold that they can upgrade their armor, that they can buy some potions, that they can raise their levels, but not too much so that they will die. Um, and that is a, a fine balance. I think that's kind of like the, the knife's edge on which you're walking as the leader of this guild. Yeah, very much so. I mean, there's um, things I have in the game where um, a monster layer that you uncover, it doesn't start spawning monsters until you find it. So you don't come up to, against the like the Cyclops layers, probably the toughest enemy in the game. You don't find the Cyclops layer surrounded by three or four of them when you first come up against it. Um, and your hero just gets pounded. You know, you find it and then you have a chance to respond to it. Um but that also means that you can explore too early and the ranger who is the hero that has the highest exploration rate where they go off and they're like, I'm going to go check out this mountain over here. Um, it's possible to explore too much early in the game and then you get that wasp nest effect getting kicked up. Yeah, that was one of the first things I learned is uh, back in, in original Majesty, OG Majesty, you would always create a Ranger's Guild first. One, because they were cheap, but two, because exploring, um, there was often some low-hanging fruit and gold that you could get from that. It, I feel like, and, and let me know if you feel this is true, within a dead city, the warrior first was the move for me, because then at least you had like someone who could defend if you kicked a wasp's nest you didn't mean to, and your guild would not be destroyed. Yeah, yeah, they. I think the warriors are probably. I, I had to nerf the ranger a little bit with the uh, official release because it was a little too overpowered. They get the highest speed of I think anything in the game, um, which means their stats didn't look great, but they could stab you three times before you, before you're able to take a look at them. Um, so they had to be toned down a little bit, and I think the warrior ended up being the. Um, now the toughest hero you can hire because they're tanks yeah that that was kind of where i was going is like it's pretty devastating to lose a hero early in this game um or late for that matter mm -hmm. <laughs> um it's in the middle where it doesn't matter so much but um yeah i i think that was kind of where i landed is i want something hardy that's going to you know repay my investment at least in the short term or medium term yeah uh it's one of the game design challenges of this that is probably not super obvious is that um, I had to create ways to soften the blow of losing your high-level hero. Because, uh, you know, in this game, you start off with a level one hero, 
and then they go out, they get all the easy experience for exploring and finishing off the early monsters nearby. Um, any hero you train subsequently, they won't get to as high of a level as your first guy, um, most likely, and uh, especially the ones you train much later on won't be able to touch them. Like that first hero you have is definitely the powerhouse of your game. And if you lose them, then that really like takes the takes a lot of momentum away from you often enough that that might be the game when you lose your first hero if you lose your second hero especially um, you're kind of like okay this is over now um, so there's a lot of different tiny little design decisions I made to kind of like keep the uh, let the player ke- uh, keep that first hero around for longer or deal with that like some of the spells I have in there um are meant to prolong or like prolong the life of your hero, get them out of a sticky situation they get themselves into, um, so things like that uh, that very subtly make it possible not to uh, get into that fail state where you lose your best heroes and now you're just overpowered. Yeah, that that totally makes sense because it, it you know we've talked about this in many strategy games that we've we've played before, but getting to the point where you've invested a significant amount of time into a game and suddenly realizing you're screwed and you can't finish the scenario is a bad feeling. And even though these are short games, uh, that would be a bad feeling even if you've invested 15 minutes instead of 15 <laughs> um, So yeah, I think that that's a smart move. Um, for those who have not yet played within a dead city, maybe we can go over the, the classes real quick. Um, we've talked about warriors, your tanks, uh, they're slower, but they're they're hardy. Rangers, explorers, right? Pretty fast. It sounds like they're not not as powerful anymore, but that's good. Um, uh-huh. We also have our wizards, very fragile, ranged spellcaster types, pretty powerful, but uh, overconfident and often dying. Mm-hmm. Um, we have our uh, merchants, right? Is that what they're called? Yeah, Where? merchants. They fulfill the tax collector role from majesty as well as the peasant role. So they'll do the repair of damaged buildings. They'll uh, collect money from the trading posts. And they'll also improve your buildings. So if you have a guardhouse, they'll automatically take it up to the next level. You get more income from your buildings. And uh, your guardhouses are more powerful, can uh, deal more and take more damage. Interesting. I never clocked the upgrade thing. That's interesting. Um, there's also the bard who will cause two enemy units to fight each other. I really liked that addition. That's a fun <laughs> one. And uh, the cleric who will cast uh, some sort of healing spells and defensive spells on your your heroes as well, which is always a, a good thing to have. So I'm sure there's a an optimal build order for this. But I was off. I was often a warrior, uh, ranger, cleric merchant was my my go-to first four and then after that it was kind of a whatever felt like i needed (laughs) (laughs) yeah the the first four i think is especially important you are able to build two heroes off the bat uh and then after you do your first upgrade of the guild house which you have the money to do at the very beginning um like you have the money to hire two heroes build a healing potion shop which you need and then um upgrade your guild and then um you're set over there like you have the money to build a few more heroes after that still um so that's a that's a good build order i've i've played around with a lot of different ones um just because you know want to see how they test out but i i do like doing a ranger first this might be a holdover from the days where he was op in my mind and he still is (laughs) um but i'll usually do a ranger to kind of get some exploration out first yeah, I, I, the only thing with that was I, I feel like it was a, a risk-reward situation. Like, if I was uh, on my shit enough to build a potion and a ranger first, then uh, I was good, because the the ranger would be hardy enough to survive. But if you lose that first ranger, you know, it's kind of all downhill from there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a couple interesting things about the classes I'll mention. Uh, first, the bard. Uh, bard is able to charm two enemies so that they fight each other instead of you. That's a uh, a little bit of a shout out to my days playing Ultima online as a bard where one of your skills was provoke. It didn't like charm the enemy to convert them onto your team, but it would make them fight something else instead. Uh, so 
I kind of continue that there. You don't like charm a rat and it's now a friendly rat. It's just like, oh, I hate this other rat even more than I hate you. So I kind of liked the effect of that. Um, let's see. And then for the merchant too, uh, I like, this is one of the like design decisions I made to be different than majesty because in majesty the tax collectors and the peasants you get those out automatically they don't take up a hero slot but here you got to decide how many merchants you go for one is usually a solid choice but there's been times where um i've gone for two merchants to really like uh batten down the base and make sure all my guard towers uh are upgraded all my trading posts are getting um the money back to them there's been times i've gone with no merchants in order to kind of like rush more heroes out there more quickly uh so i think there is a little bit of strategy in choosing which one of those ways you go down and i like that that is a choice you have to make yeah i think that's interesting and i I like the I'm, i'm personally a one merchant man myself um but uh I could see the building out the infrastructure and just sort of, for lack of a better word, protossing it, you know, just slowly expanding your wall of proton cannons or guard towers in this case. (laughs) That could be a a viable strategy, the expanding turtle, if you will. But um, yeah, that's interesting. I I haven't tried that one, but maybe I will now. One little, uh, I guess, little tweak on the formula that I'm pretty proud of is the corruption that your base gains because if you are trying to build out slowly and build a huge base this is something you have to deal with um so in the original majesty uh when your base became a certain size certain uninvincible layers would appear sewers that would spawn rats and rat men at a certain cadence that you'd have to take care of usually just by throwing a guardhouse nearby them and that you don't. You can ignore them afterwards. Um, I kind of wanted something that you wouldn't just be able to toss a tower down and be good. Um, so what I have is something called corruption. The um, higher your guild's economy level, the more money you're making, the more buildings you have, the more upgraded they are. Uh, the higher your corruption uh, level grows each day. And when it reaches 100, then it resets to zero and it spawns a base, a monster layer nearby a random civilization building you have, a random guild building. So it might be an outlying trading post. It might be right by your uh, main base there. Uh, so it's something you kind of got to keep in mind. There's, There are some rare resources you can build trading posts next to, and some of them decrease that corruption rate that comes up but uh if you build a huge base then you definitely get layer after layer after layer coming after you yeah i I noticed that and i i I often i wondered a little bit about what the corruption did but then i started to notice these uh enemy layers appearing in my base and that makes sense and i also like it as a thing like because if i think about the fantasy cities that i am aware of in my you know, gaming career, your, say your Baldur's Gates, for example, <laughs> uh, a city becomes big enough and it starts to become its own den of inequity and corruption and evil. You know, you go down to the sewers and all of a sudden you've got like kobolds and other forces of evil, even worse, that are, you know, making strongholds down there. And this sort of like is a mechanical way of implementing that in a very simple way. And I like it. It's very cool. It was also a way to, uh, one of the big like motivations to implement that wasn't because like, oh, Majesty did this. I have to have something similar. It was uh, when you trained a new hero, they had to have something to do that wasn't like going out to the far reaches of the map and try to take on the biggest, baddest monsters they can find. Uh, so yeah. creating that kind of like nearby layers that are of a lower level that the your high level heroes are probably ignoring unless you put some cash money on them um it gave the new heroes something to do it's literally systematizing the kill the rats in this basement quest <laughs> i mean that's the reason it's so common is it's uh, <laughs> got to give you something to do as a level one guy i love it but um instead of talking about uh killing rats in basements let's talk a little bit about the end game because you know uh, once you eventually get to the point where you've won your scenario, whether it's by surviving or uh, killing all of the layers that you need to during your conquest, um, you get a score, you know, right? You're you're told you have achieved victory and you can choose to continue in sandbox mode or, or go back to title screen. And uh, I started continuing on in sandbox mode pretty quick just because uh, I, I noticed 
that there was a button that was added to my screen upon doing so, the spawn button. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was just a fun little thing to play. Uh, all of a sudden, I'm t- transported back to SimCity and uh, spawning uh, the alien invasion on my my poor, unsuspecting simlings. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the um, sandbox mode is the third mode, and you have the option to continue on after you obtain a victory in either of the other two modes, or you can start off in sandbox mode too. Um, I implemented this because I think I got a piece of feedback that somebody really wanted to keep continuing to play after they finished the conquest mode, and like they wanted to wipe out all the monsters on the map. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. That wouldn't be too hard to program in there. But then, like, what do you do after that? Um, so what I kind of put in there is you have the spawn button where you can spawn any enemy or any monster layer in the game um, as much as you want to click that button. Uh, So it's kind of like a self-directed challenge over there. Uh, And to what Brian was talking about with the disasters in particular, um, there's two buttons I added on there uh, to kind of like really test what your heroes were (laughs) capable of. because it's like, okay, I don't want to just click the Cyclops button until they just get destroyed all the time. I want to see how good this batch of heroes I whipped up actually was. Um, so the two buttons are the Crab Apocalypse, which summons uh, one crab per beach tile on the map. You know, there's like uh, plains tiles and there's water tiles. And if you have a plains tile next to a water tile, a crab will appear on that. <laughs> yeah. If you hit the button, these these guys are kind of like level three monsters, like the Cyclops or the Black Knight or the other toughest monsters in the game. Except now there's like fifty of them showing up at once, um, so they'll pretty quickly wreck your heroes most of the time. I was able to fend off the cramps <laughs> once in all of my playtesting and everything, uh, so I think those guys are pretty well balanced over there. But the other one is a uh, Nighthog, the World Eater. Yeah, and, and this was one where as soon as I saw it, I was like, uh, this is pretty serious, Because, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I, I don't think this one's actually doable, at least. To, it wasn't for me. Um, it was real hard. And neither was the Crabpocalypse for me, at least. Um, but, yeah, wow. Like, I, I like the custom art. I, I pressed that button just because I was like, well, I've never seen that one before. Let's see what the World Eater looks like. That sounds good. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't good. Long story short, it was not good. That's <laughs> a little call, back, call out to a Norse mythology. Nighthog is the serpent that eats the roots of the world tree, Yggdrasil. Um, so I'm like, okay, if I'm going to end the guild immediately with a monster, it's going to be Nighthog. We'll go with that. I have yeah. a snake. I drew a snake uh, for the game already for the monsters. So uh, we'll just make that snake even bigger. And there we go. Um, and speaking of drawing, um, I want to talk a little bit about this game's art. Um, you know, having gotten to Endgame a couple times myself, I got a chance to experience all the various creatures, you know, your one to three level creatures, as you said, with regards to how powerful they are. And let's just go back to the top, because this game has a very striking art style. Um, it has a very specific color scheme. It's major in your purples, blacks, white, and tan uh, from what I can see. So tell me a little bit about like where that came from and why you decided to go with this limited palette. Uh, went with the limited palette. I think it was for the strikingness of it. I can't take credit for the palette much myself. Uh, there's a website that's famous among pixel artists called lowspec.com, L-O-S-P-E-C, uh, that a lot of people uh, will post like, hey, I made this pixel palette. Um and this one is called Oil Six. It's done by, uh, created by Graph X Kid, um, and I added the red in the game to there—the red that's used for the health bars and whatnot. Uh, kind of following like you know color selection principles, but by and large, the striking element of the color palette is all due to Graphics Kid. Um, so shout out to that guy. Um, I want to make sure I'm taking a, look, a quick note of these because we'll add them to the show notes. But that's that's really cool. And it does stick out, you know, like looking at it uh, just in a, a lineup of games um, that are out there. It is a, it, it definitely sticks out. And on top of that, I noticed um, some of the art, there, there's 
two distinct art styles that are present in this game. There is the sort of charming map level pixel art where you have uh, sort of lo-fi looking buildings and people and map tiles. And then you also have the more detailed portraits that are on there. Can you tell me a little bit about the uh, the difference between those and how they were generated and from, you know, how, how you got those to where they are today? Oh, sure. Uh, with the art assets in general, I think there were two major things I was looking for. The first was something I could do quickly. So for the map style, kind of um, the pixel art over there, it's based off of a Kenny NL sprite set that you've probably seen some of these monsters in other games before, other sprites, because uh, Kenny is a very uh, prolific and well-known like uh, pixel artist or art asset creator. I, I think converting his sprites towards that color scheme, the color palette, uh, definitely helps kind of like I don't know, mask them or make them look a little bit different um, than what you normally have. But I would say that it's probably only about 20% of the sprites in the game are straight or slight modifications of Kenny sprites, but I think it's all the most important ones. Like most of the heroes, um, I think most of the monsters too, like 80 to 90% of those categories are Kenny sprites. Um, and then I took a look at those sprites and I'm like, okay, these 16 by 16 sprites, this is something that's like within my ability to do so I can play with it as well. Um, so all the other sprites, the other 80-ish percent of the sprites and artwork in the game, um, I was able to draw myself but make it look cohesive as well. Like if I showed you a screenshot, I don't think you'd be able to pick out like, oh, this unit was done by Kenny necessarily uh, versus by me, which is always good when you're using other people's assets. You want to make sure the art can be cohesive. Um, otherwise, it kind of looks like an asset flip. That's interesting because I did see uh, I did see Kenny's name in the credits and I wondered about that. Um, and, you know, I wondered if you had someone else joining you on that project for that specific purpose. But uh, it sounds to me like this is more of an adaptation thing where you're crediting the initial artist for what you've, you've then adapted and um, turned into the signature art style of Within a Dead City. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't count doing a color swap with the palettes as like, oh, these are my sprites now. Uh, there's other <laughs> sure, ones, with yeah. <laughs> other things I drew, but like definitely he deserves the credit in the game for that. Um, of course. And then the other other thing uh, you were talking about was the portraits for the unit in the building selection. Uh, that was all done with stable diffusion and then corrected by myself afterwards to fix um, many of the flaws. Although I will say there's thing <laughs> I was willing to get a little sloppier with this as well. Um, but I've been a fan of AI art and the kind of like things that could be done with it. I will say there are copyright issues out there. Um, there are people who are taking living artists and trying to ape or mimic their style, which that I'm not a fan of because I don't, the artist didn't consent to being included in that training set. So my own kind of way to um, way to do this myself was that the uh, only artist that I specified in the training prompts, like, you know how these things work. You put in a bunch of words, that's your prompt. In the style of X, sure. Yeah, picture comes out. Uh, the only tr artist I used uh, by name was Alfonso Mucha. Mucha. He was a French fin de siècle uh, painter or illustrator. So he's dead and he's in copyright. So I felt less bad <laughs> about including his, uh, his name. And it... It isn't so much in his style either. I think it's just kind of like you put certain words in there to raise the quality bar on your output. But hmm. ethically, I felt in the clear using an out-of-copyright artist for that. Yeah, I think that's fair. And that's that's interesting. You know, obviously, this is a conversation that's evolving every day with the regards to AI and uh, use of it with generating art. And But, um, you know, you have a better handle on it than I do. So I, I trust your judgment here. Um at the end of the day, um, what came out with regards to this is, you know, to my mind, two distinct art styles that look and perform well side by side. You know, you were able to, as you've mentioned, make sure that that um, very specific oil color palette came through and that it all cohered, which uh, 
I enjoyed to look at, you know, either in a window on my screen or, you know, full screen blown up. It, it just worked, which uh, kudos to you for that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, one special little graphics call out I'll have is the title screen of this game. Uh, that's mm. something I'm a little proud of. You, uh, you open up the game and you're in like an administrator's office. There's some yes. desks and some people <laughs> filling out paperwork. And, you know, the steam capsule I have for this guy standing on top of a platform looking out over a vast vista of ruined towers and things like that. That's I think it's eye-catching enough and it does its job well, but it doesn't really like look that could be for a number of games that that capsule's appropriate for. But I feel like you open the game up and you get like, "Oh, I'm in an office." That's that's interesting. Like I, I think it kind of helps set the mood and the tone for the game. Like you're not doing stuff. You're just the other guy doing paperwork. You know what it reminded me of is uh, the office building you find yourself in when you arrive on Morrowind in The Elder Scrolls Three Morrowind. So <laughs> you, you arrive on the island and you're you're being processed, and uh, the guy behind the desk says, "There's a few ways we can do this, and the choice is yours." <laughs> <And> <laughs> so uh, you know that was basically what I heard in my head when I was playing start or pressing start new game, and I see the options for game selection coming up. other sort of artistic side of things that I want to talk about before we uh, move on is the music, which again, uh, Josh Galecki originals, as I understand, but in a much different style than Moondrop, uh, you know, different instrumentation, different style, much more minimalistic. Tell me how you landed on that and uh, how it was created. Well, it might not surprise you that I actually did notice the music in this game, having to have <laughs> created all by myself. Um, but yeah, it's... Definitely a uh, different vibe than Moondrop, different purpose than Moondrop as well. Although I think both of these games ended up with a fairly chill soundtrack. Uh, although mm. two different kind of um, intense in each case. Um, yeah. So this game, I had, you, you remember that old, uh, what do you call them? DAWs? Uh, D-A-Ws? The kind of yeah, like... D-A- Digital audio workspace. That's right. Uh, there was one called uh, Mixcraft that you showed me way back. I don't know, high school or so. So this like was my I would um, do. <laughs> this was my triumphant return to uh, Daw. Uh, was getting back in here and just playing around. Like um, I've done so much composition uh, on piano or, or guitar or whatnot that it was fun to get back to just being able to place as many notes as I wanted to wherever I wanted them to like um some of the guitar pieces in this game are not possible to play on a guitar I know that uh, <laughs> but I can I can click keys and put the put the notes in wherever I want uh, but in terms of the instrumentation um I don't have the I'll say I don't have the like the highest quality virtual instruments um but this was using the default mixcraft stuff it was a one of their guitar pre sets and then a flute preset uh sometimes two flutes and a duet um but those were the only three instruments used throughout the whole thing and i think the the vibe i was going for was a very peaceful one like there's not combat music that goes on some of the some of the music is a little more um energetic for sure but a lot of it is slower and just more peaceful um which i think is a little bit of a contrast to the action in the game can happen very very frequently um a lot of stuff can be on the screen it can be a little chaotic and i think in a fun way too um but it's a kind of a contrast to that another thing i don't know if you noticed but there's not music playing at all times during the game I did notice that the game sort of like takes a breath and, and pauses for a couple minutes at a time after that. And I, I figured that was intentional because, you know, this is a game where there's also sound effects, right? So you're letting sort of the action on the screen dictate the the audio sound space. And that is also fine. You know what this reminded me of quite a bit is Minecraft. Um, huh. It's very minimalistic soundtrack. Um, you know, there's uh, it's sort of fading in and out, sort of regardless of what is going on on the screen. You know, you could be being pursued by a spider and all of a sudden this haunting, beautiful, very chill med- melody comes up 
and you're like, huh, uh, that's odd, but it still punctuates the moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this functions in a very similar way. Like, as you said, especially if you're going at 2x speed and you're in the middle of an intense defense of your base, um, you know, this warbling flute and, and sort of keyboard synth situation coming in may feel like it doesn't fit, but at the same time, it's the soundtrack of the game and it always fits. In <laughs> <way>. <laughs> um, so it, it worked for me. One of the feelings I was going for with the soundtrack was that the city doesn't really care um, mm-hmm. whether you're there or not. It. And it's just continuing. I think that's actually one of the songs on the side soundtrack is like the city doesn't care or something like that. But that was mm. kind of a theme I was going for with that. Another slight musical shout out I'll do is um, I'll tell you what, the uh, theme for the title screen, I'm not the hugest fan of. I think it's a little too slow, but I do like it that it was a direct reference of the majesty theme. Uh, the Majesty theme that starts out. I'll cut it in. <laughs> I took that and I cut it down to like eight times speed, and that's the uh, beginning of Within a Dead City. So I don't think oh, it's that's like fascinating. that musical, but like with that bit of context, it's Majesty at eight times as slow. I kind of like that. I like that. That's a nice little Easter egg. I'll have to um, I'll have to re-listen and, and listen in for that. I didn't clock it, but um, I mean, not surprising given eight eight x uh, difference. But that's that's really cool. <laughs> Maybe not eight x, but it was it was something I wanted to uh, I wanted to reference Majesty without making it seem like I'm just aping it with everything it does. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Sort of an homage. It's uh, it's very cool. One final thing that we've talked about as parents is the necessity of a pause button. And I was very <laughs> thankful that this game did indeed have an option to pause the action. All you have to do is press space. Lovely. Classic. That saved me, that, that saved me from losing many, many a run, I would have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say one thing it doesn't have. I think this was something that got uh, cut on the production floor. It's a save option, though. Um, that is also why I want to keep the games to be within like 15 minutes a piece, is because if it was trying to be longer, then I feel like you have to have a way to save and come back to it. If it's just like 10 minutes, then okay, it's just 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. You know, this is one of those games that's meant to be sort of a quick hit, you know, uh, single sitting, you know, situation. But, you know, if that doesn't work out, then it's nice to have that option. But I I think you're right. The design space that you're playing in lends itself to not needing that, which is a good thing. Uh, Though pause is always needed. Regardless. (laughs) I don't care if you got a 15-minute play or 15-second play session. You need to have that pause button. (laughs) Yeah, Diablo 4 is a recent offender in that category. You got to be online with everyone else because reasons. Reasons, sure. (sighs) Ah. Well, I would just bump that one down on my list. <laughs> anyway, before we uh, close this out, I have a couple quick things, you know, just to sort of summarize the project and get and get your thoughts on uh, what the process was like. Um, what would you say, given all the various things we talked about, timeline, art, um, mechanics, what was the hardest part of making Within a Dead City this time around? The hardest part, I think, was adapting to the rapid schedule of development. Um I was not sure I'd be able to finish the game I was thinking of when I started this. And I'm like, okay, two months. Let's see what we got. Uh, So I kind of surprised myself with being able to do that. Um, But trying to change gears to work with that rapid pace and kind of learning things as you go, what you need to do in order to make a game at that pace, uh, it was an adjustment to do that for sure. Yeah, definitely, you know, just as an outside observer, like seeing how quickly this one sort of came into being compared to all of the various systems and phases and evolution that that went on with Moondrop, this is, you know, this one came out fairly fully formed from what I could see. Like even when it was just a WebGL thing on itch, like the bones were there. And I immediately, I remember telling you right when I first played that itch WebGL build, um, 
this is this is something like this is cool. <laughs> I like this a lot and yeah I, I immediately wanted to play more like a, one more one more run situation so uh, kudos to you maybe this this is just a nice little pearl that came out in a, a good spot but you iterated on it very well mm-hmm. thank you thank you uh, I'll continue on with that um, any specific moments that stand out with regards to you know breakthroughs achievements proud moments I think at the end of that first two months when I finished it on time, like even before I uploaded that final release build, I remember being proud of myself for having created a fun game and like a polished sort of game too, not just like, it didn't feel prototypey back then, uh, but it felt like a polished, complete game within two months, even before I knew what the feedback on it would have been. Yeah, I think that's that's another thing. Like I remember playing early builds of Moondrop, and you know, when it was still very much in prototype phase. And um, again, maybe this is just you having a lot of more experience under your belt this time around. But um, you know, coming out in a much more, uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, a playable. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like it is mm-hmm. clearly like a, a fully formed product and game. And I don't mean that it like to to slight what Moondrop is or became, because that's obviously a project that I have a lot of affection for as well. But um, yeah, it's a it's a great evolution, and I think the the the, the quickness that it came together was uh, a testament to to you and what you what the vision for it was. So I guess given that, talking about vision, where to next? Talk about you know what's next for um, within a dead city. Talk about what's next uh, beyond. Next, the very next stuff for Within the Dead City, something I'm working on right now, is adding content to the game. Uh, some of the negative reviews that the game did get on Steam, because um, sure, it got some negative reviews, uh, was saying that there wasn't enough in the game. Uh, they were expecting um, more content, more missions, things to do, uh, something that was closer to the scope of majesty, uh, to which I say I was charging $3 for this thing. I wasn't trying to charge a majesty <laughs> price. Um, but that, at the that was going to be my rebuttal, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's, this is supposed to be like a quick and fun game, but at the same time, like I've got these systems in here already. So I feel like I've got a do uh give it another shot in terms of adding more to the game um and giving some of the more um there's a the strategy audience on steam is definitely a little leans more towards the hardcore they like playing long games and i think there's some ways that i could very easily add on to the length and depth of within a dead city um the initial thing i'm working on right now is a goblin faction that acts much as your heroes do exploring the dead city and uh vying with you for like raiding monsters except instead of destroying the monster layers they like make them stronger or something while still stealing their gold and having their own economy and high level heroes for you to fight uh so i feel like that's a kind of a hero focused way to improve and kind of present something different with this game as well Uh, another way i'm thinking of kind of expanding this too is creating a tiny campaign uh maybe something like five to eight missions you play on a random map or something like that um, where the ultimate objective is to stop the goblin cult that you're fighting from summoning Nighthog the world eater and maybe if you go through the campaign and uh, you destroy all the temples or something like that then he comes and he's weaker and you're able to beat him more easily than the nearly invulnerable version that's out there right now that actually he's, he's kind of there as a challenge to the internet if anybody can beat him yeah uh i i will say that uh as far as uh this podcast's reach goes uh i couldn't beat him so uh challenge <laughs> the, the gauntlet is thrown wider internet please uh see if you can uh destroy needhog in the current iteration uh as of august 2023 in terms of where to go next and wider game development um i love this tiny mass development cycle this uh spend two months on a game see how it does and move on to the next one like um moondrop took two years maybe two years and three months of development time um and within dead city took six to get to and i feel both of them are great games in their own way but 
I'd rather do like 10 games in five years or more than 10 games um, with all the other ones going out rather than doing like two games in five years. I have too many ideas out there to like <laughs> hold myself down to just that. I love it. And yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Like um, get things out quick, see if they work. If they really work, then you can iterate on them. Like that's the nice thing about software is it's always able to be built upon. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's wise and, and well put. So yeah. Congrats on uh, getting one out there very quickly, but also very polishedly and very, you know, for my money, uh, quite fun as well. This is a great little gem of a game, and uh, I'm really happy uh, for you that it came out the way it did. Um, Thank you. Any final thoughts or uh, things you want to talk about with regards to the, the process, the game, the future? One thing I want to kind of talk about um, is comparing Moondrop and Within a Dead City to like I've thought a little bit about why I love the dev cycle so much and I think part of it is like it is quicker so you get more games out there you get to see more things but um, with Moondrop I was trying something I think it was a very original idea so original it was almost too original like trying to figure out the UI to explain to the player what's going on um, because it was so unlike other games I didn't have a reference point for like here's how to display things so that the players know I couldn't take advantage of uh, game literacy that other people had so easily and I think some of the earlier versions I don't know if you remember playing those but they were rougher a lot like harder to figure out what was going on with what plants being planted where Um, Mm -hmm. there were a lot of pivots with Moondrop Uh, I can remember three distinct occasions where I'm like okay I've got to redo the entire planting system now Um, and there was kind of like baggage that came along with that in a way like um, I'm thinking like in particular the feats in Moondrop like you level up in Moondrop and farming you get you get to pick from three feats or whatnot and um there were a lot of feats that I cut and killed from uh, one pivot to the next because it didn't make sense anymore. But there's others where I was like, oh, you know, this isn't as good anymore, but it's still okay. it's still pretty good. It's it, functional. It's still functional over there. And I think over those pivots and over those years, Moondrop really kind of like diverged. It didn't cohere as much around a single game design idea or philosophy. Um, and I think that's... When you're doing a long project, it's inevitable that you have that kind of like dispersion, sprawl, sprawl, yeah. Um, And doing a very tight one where you're only thinking about something for two months, maybe, or if people are liking that you do it for four or six or whatever, like um, you're able to stay more tightly focused. And if I had to describe the major difference between Moondrop and Within a Dead City, I would say focus is the one word review of within a dead city yeah no i i I don't think i could have said it better from an outsider perspective and you know obviously you're closer to this than i am but you know right as i said just before you went into that uh some summarization this game is such a like just a nice little gem of an item you know it, it does feel cohesive and complete so uh, once again, I'll, I'll congratulate you and uh, say I'm excited to see what's next, not just for um, Within a Dead City, but uh, whatever comes next, too. Oh, thank you. Excited to make them. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I'm excited to play them. And with that, I want to say thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then feel Take free to care. share. Folks you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or contact us on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And keep your scope in check. <laughs> <laughs>
a tactical decision here or there, like uh, calling your warriors back to the warriors guild or casting a spell at a certain time. But generally speaking, you're planning the broad strategy, but not the tactical battles, who's fighting who, when. And I think that mm-hmm. creates space for you to tell these stories about the heroes and adventurers because the strategy by definition has to take place over a broader, uh, a longer period of time than the tactics do. So you make the strategy and then you're kind of like waiting for the strategy to play out. So you tell stories. You see what that doofus wizard is up to and if he died yet. Yeah, and I think another thing about this is, is it probably has an input on the types of challenges and the type of difficulty you can throw at your players. Because if you, at the drop of a hat, can direct every hero on a big bad that appears, um, that is a lot more straightforward than making sure that when a big bad appears, you have a gigantic cash reserve that can place just the biggest bounty you've ever seen on that, <laughs> uh, that, that big bad. And even then, like some of your less money-motivated heroes may just ignore it. Um, And that's interesting to me, you know? Like, when you can't really account for your heroes being rational actors or for even even less so obedient, um, it just changes the type of challenges you can throw at a player with regards to, like, control that they have over the situation. Yeah, for sure. It's... You got to be thoughtful about the feedback you're getting your players to. Like, obviously, there's the win and lose, but it's also the why did you lose? Why did you win? Kind of things. Uh, It's important to kind of nudge the player here and there about like, hey, this was a good idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and, uh, I guess the, the best way to do that is just to give them information about like what your heroes are doing. And the best way to do that is to make them interested in watching them. Uh, So (laughs) at the end of the day, like if you can have your wizards act like little goofballs or your warriors act like numbskulls or your rangers act like overconfident uh, D-bags, uh, that's all in service of storytelling, which keeps your players hooked, which keeps them watching, which, you know, gives them that feedback. So it's a virtuous cycle. So one thing I did with Within a Dead City was um, I worked with a, uh, I don't know if you call them a publisher or kind of like marketing and localization kind of company or maybe both, uh, but there's a publishing studio electronic sheep that I worked with to bring the game to a Chinese audience. I had a Chinese layer of localization, uh, both traditional and simplified Chinese. Um, also translated the game into Spanish myself just as a way to practice my Spanish there. Uh, but so far it's really paid off. I think about a little less than a third of my sales right now are coming from um, China uh, uh, around there. And strangely enough, an even larger number are coming from Japan. I think I'm like bigger in Japan than I ever expected to be, especially since we don't, we're getting a uh, Japanese translation together this week, uh, but don't have it yet. Um, so the using the localization studio and the outreach, that helped out, but also kind of randomly got picked up by Japan. Well, that's awesome. I mean, hey, like, I guess that's kind of what you're paying them for, or rather what the the business deal is, right? They will help with exposure and localization, translation, etc. And your product will reach more people, right? That, that seems like a good arrangement. Yeah, for sure. Uh, these guys have worked with other indie studios before. I don't know if you've heard of Dwerve or Research Story, uh, but both of those I reached out to the devs and they had great things to say about uh, the sheep as I've been calling them. Um, so <laughs> figured, you know, Moondrop, I think only had 3% of their sales from the whole Asian continent. So I'm like, well, can't do any worse than that. So let's try <laughs> try these guys out. So when they reached out yeah. to me, I was uh, excited to work with them and uh, I think it paid off. You know, that's another interesting thing about this fast iteration and um, you know, putting out of a new product on a shorter time period like this it, is that it gives you the latitude to experiment with new business decisions as well as gameplay decisions, right? Like 
if this was a very long-term project that you invested a lot of time and money into, then maybe you wouldn't feel as good about making a decision like that just to, you know, uh, whether it be like uh, an investment or rev split or something like that. But this is an opportunity for you not just to uh, debut some mechanics that you may want to build on, but maybe a business plan you might want to build on. And that's interesting. Yeah, it's experimentation in all ways, uh, all kinds of ways. And um, you're able to take that experience with you on the next one. Like um, my knowledge about localization will pay dividends in future games, both in how I approach them from a business side, but also from the uh, game dev side too. Like I have a translation layer coded up already. I can just pop it on any game I make from now on and it's just there and ready to go. Now that is probably something you didn't think about with your first project. So that is uh, (laughs) truly a mark of progress right there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 